So we've been looking at John 15, uh, this teaching that Jesus does about the vineyard. He's, you remember, between the, the Last Supper and his trials and crucifixion, and he, he pauses in the Gospel of John to teach about the vineyard. So we've been talking a little bit about grapes, because that's what, of course, you grow in vineyards. So I just kind of wanted to see um, what y'all know about grapes. So take out a piece of paper or turn your sermon notes over or something. We're going to do a little quiz. Just keep track of your score. Let's see how you did. We'll, and uh, we'll see if we can be honest at the end. So here we go. Let's go ahead and put up the seven questions. Seven questions is all. Pretty easy. Let's see how you can do. All right, first slide. True or false? Grapes are indigenous to the United States. Write your answer down. Be honest with yourself. What do you think? True or false? Grapes are indigenous to the U.S. Got your answer written down? We're going to move quick, okay? So don't think too long. If it first comes to your mind, go with that. Answer is false. Spanish explorers introduced the fruit to America about 300 years ago. Number two, which of these is not a color of grape? Green, red, black, yellow, pink, or purple? Which one or more of these is not a color of grape? Green, red, black, yellow, pink, or purple? Go ahead, well, write it down. Don't tell the people around you. This isn't the SAT. We can't be cheating. All right, let's see the answer. <laughs> Suckers, they're all colors of grapes. Oh, gotcha. All right, honestly, how many got that one right? Betty, way to go. And I know there's others too. All right, good. Number three. About how many pounds of grapes does it take to make one bottle of bubbly? Of wine, not bubbly. Sorry, that's champagne. Of wine. Write down your guess. About how many pounds of grapes? Survey says about two and a half pounds of grapes to make one bottle of wine. And uh, how many bottles of wine does it take for us to serve communion on Sundays? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's none. We, we do grape juice. Number four, how many glasses of wine can one acre of grapes produce on average? How many glasses of wine can one acre of grapes produce on average? Write your best guess down, and we'll give you a leeway if you're a little off. That's no big deal. James, what do you think? James Gephardt. Who's laughing now? Oh, Don, come on, Don. You're killing me here, Smalls, killing me. Question number five. If I ever host a TV game show, remind me that Don can't run the visuals. <clears throat> about how many pounds of grapes does the average person eat per year? Don't put the answer on. Go ahead, write your answer down. About how many pounds does the average person eat per year? Survey says eight pounds. That's a lot of little spheres, isn't it? Number six, what's the best-selling grape in the U.S.? What's the best-selling grape in the U.S.? The purple ones. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like the green ones. All right. The correct answer is 
Thompson Seedless, and maybe that's because that's what golden raisins come from. Um, Thompson Seedless was the best that my research could find. And last question, number seven, is a true or false? Oregon State flower is the grape. What do you think? Write your answer down. True or false? You ready for the answer? All right, it was a trick question. The Oregon grape is the official flower of Oregon. However, it's not a grape, nor are its berries. They are medicinal, but they're not actually grapes. So that was just a little one to have fun. How many of you got four better without cheating and seeing the answer earlier? Okay, we're going to have to go easier next time, huh? We had some that had four or better. How many had five or better? If you, if you had four or better, stand up. I saw a couple. Now, come on. don't Stand up, Kelly. Amy, your hand was up. Karen? Okay, five or better? So it looks like four was the score to, to beat. How many of you had three or better? Well, I guess you wouldn't have had better. How many of you had three? <laughs> Two? How many of you only got the answer right when it flashed early? <laughs> all right, all right. Just a little fun, see what you know about grapes. John chapter 15. Follow along as I read from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And jump down to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So uh, at the previous home where Sarah and I lived, we had a garden. Um, we had plenty of land, and Sarah decided that she was going uh, to try her hand at a garden. She'd always been a black thumb up till then, so none of us really expected it to go far, and she didn't either, uh, but nonetheless, she thought she's going to give it a try. So, uh, so for several years in a row, we had a, uh, an expanding garden, and, and Sarah grew things in our garden like uh, green peppers and sweet corn, strawberries, uh, tomatoes, tried potatoes one time, uh, let's see, cucumbers, um, I think, green beans, that's right, yep, 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 okay. So uh, we were telling somebody about that earlier, and they were surprised, they said, why would she grow so many vegetables? Everybody knows that Pastor Earl doesn't like vegetables, it's a common misnomer, I do like vegetables, I just don't like them cooked, and the garden didn't cook them, so we were good to go. Um, so, so we had this, uh, we had this garden, and, and um, and Sarah's black thumb seemed to have disappeared, at least in that garden, and she did a great job. And, and it was kind of exciting. She would decide what she was going to plant for the season, and, and uh, you know, she and the kids would tend to the garden. I had a job, which I'm going to tell you about in a few minutes. Um, but but then you know how it goes if you've had a garden or if you've done any kind of farming. Um, you go out periodically, not just to take care of the garden, but, but to watch and see if there's any fruit yet. And, you know, have, have, are there little strawberries starting to grow, or do you see any evidence that that there's vegetables coming. 
And, uh, and, and you probably know how it works. Sometimes she would go out and, and, uh, and when it was harvest time and there would be more of whatever she had planted than we could ever eat. And so we'd give them to friends and we'd take them to church and give them to the food pantry, whatever we can do. And, and sometimes, you know, different plants even in the same year, she'd go out and, and it's like there's nothing. Like, <laughs> this is disappointing. All this work and labor and, and there's nothing to show for it. We kind of get a sense as we read these verses in John 15 that the same is true for the heavenly gardener. Jesus said, sometimes my, my father goes and, and he, finds, uh, he finds so much fruit that he's just overwhelmed, and other times it's like, ah, there's something to be desired. Again, listen to what Jesus said in verses 2 and verses 5. Uh, my father, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So apparently in God's garden, there's branches that aren't bearing fruit. While every branch that bears some fruit, he proves so that it will be even more fruitful. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now when Sarah would tend our garden, there would, she would find there'd be all kinds of things that would keep our garden from producing much whatever the, the specific produce was. Uh, and, and you can imagine some of the, what, what kind of things keep gardens from producing? Just holler some out. Rabbits. Weeds. Lack of sun, lack of rain. Birds. Bugs. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of things, right? So we, we dealt with all those. But there were some especially bad culprits in our garden, specifically chipmunks, Deer, raccoon, these are just the ones we spied eating the, uh, uh, the produce. And one summer, even turkey. And that was a foul deal. Yeah. Okay, thanks. You're hanging with me. So, I, and, and we get all these things, right? We understand that these things happen. There's things that keep produce from happening in our gardens. Have you ever thought, though, in verse 2, Jesus said, there are branches in God's vineyard that don't bear fruit. Have you ever thought about what would keep Christians, because remember, in this metaphor, we are the branches, what is it that would keep us from bearing fruit? Why would the Heavenly Father walk into the vineyard that is His kingdom, and as He works through and looks at our lives, why would He look at us and say, there's no fruit in your life? What are some culprits that would keep fruit from growing. I just, I just want to mention three. Um, the first one would be sin. Sin is a culprit that keeps us from bearing fruit. If the father walks through and sees no, no fruit, there's a good chance that sin has something to do with that. We understand sin to be willful violations of the known will of God. Or we might say it like this. It's the... Uh, it's the, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, for example, or the, the violation of things in God's Word that are specific are not acceptable for believers. Um, so it, it might be an adulterous affair. I mean, clearly that would be a, known, a willful violation of the known will of God. It might be gossip. It might be stirring up dissension. And we could go on and on with things that Scripture's pretty clear. This is not acceptable behavior for Christians. But there could be other things that would keep us from bearing fruit. For example, um, we could get to the point where we um, 
Uh, we focus on things of the world. We start to be more concerned with a better job so we can make more money. Or we become more concerned with the shape of our body and, and getting in better shape. Or uh, we, we begin to put more priority on people's perspectives and, and what other people think. Better stuff, more stuff, better opinions, more power, more influence, more money. And, and we begin to focus on the things that are of this world and not of the kingdom. Jesus actually tells a parable about this. You may remember the parable of the seed or the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. He says a farmer goes out and sows his seed and, and then he talks about how different seed on different soil responds and some grows and, and some grows and produces a great crop and, and, and some never grows, um, but some grows up quickly and then he says it's choked out by the thorns of life, by the worries of life, by the deceitfulness of life, riches and recognition and recreation. Or we might also find that we're giving into apathy or we're going through the motions. I don't know about you, but I continue to learn about myself that, that the time when I start to go through the motions or start to care less than I should are seasons when I'm tired, when I'm exhausted, when I feel like I'm running on empty. And that's when I start to just kind of go, eh, whatever, I'll get to it. And my, my own time with the Lord begins to suffer. And my relationships with God's people begin to suffer because I'm not putting the energy into the relationships and the intentional discipleship. My church participation suffers. For me, that probably looks different than you. But we see it happen all the time, don't we? People just kind of slip into this groove where they're just kind of going through the motions. It is what it is. I don't care. You see, these are all things that cause no fruit. Now, I told you that I would tell you about my responsibility in the garden that we had. Um, I was what I called the EOM. That stands for Exterminator of Other Mouths. So we had other mouths trying to feed off of our food, and I was the one that would take care of that. And I had three young helpers who would help me, and uh, I had some tools. I had a BB gun. Um, on the way to church today, my oldest daughter uh, says, now, Dad, are you going to be honest and tell them that you were never able to hit a chipmunk with your BB gun? I said, no, because I was able to hit them. I couldn't kill them, but I hit a few. I had a BB gun. Uh, we used pie tins. Maybe you've seen this. We'd, we'd hang up pie tins, you know, strings around the, the garden, and, and the idea was that the, the, the noise that they would make as the wind blew them would keep creatures away. Apparently not these creatures. Um, I built bigger and, and bigger fences, hoping to keep animals out, and, and dug deeper and deeper, and, and buried fence, hoping, you know, I tried everything. But my favorite tool, my favorite tool for exterminating other mouse, I'm, I'm just going to show you. And some of you have probably used this before, but if not, this is a great one. Um, this was my favorite tool. Have you ever used this method? I'm going to come over here because I've told that I never preach to this side, so this is for you. Um, this is a bucket. Nothing special about this bucket. Five-gallon bucket. You fill it about, I don't know, two-thirds of the way with water. And uh, then this is a piece of wood. Nothing special about it. Uh, you just create a nice little ramp right up to the bucket that's now filled with two-thirds two filled with water. And these are sunflower seeds. You can buy these at any store, Walmart, 
Meyer, wherever you want. You can buy them in smaller pack. I just find it's easy to open one big pack. So you uh, open the bag, the bucket's two-thirds filled with water, and you just make sure there's a layer of seeds across the top of the water. They float nicely, uh, but you want to make sure the water's completely covered. And, and, uh, and what happens is the, the wildlife, especially the chipmunks who uh, were driving me crazy, um, they, they are curious about what's happening here, and, and they smell something's happening, so they climb the ramp, they get to the top, and they look down, and they see a smorgasbord of sunflower seeds. And they want to eat them, but they can't quite reach them. Again, that's why the water is only about two-thirds in. And so they do what any smart animal does when there's available food and no one's going to stop you. They jump onto the pile of seeds, only to find out that it's not a pile, and it's water, and then they drown. (laughs) Don't feel sorry for them. They're eating our vegetables. Come on. How many of you look in the life of another believer who's grown apathetic and there's no fruit, and you go, oh, you poor thing. Come on, folks. What what was it? Did you say you're going to report me to PETA? You have no proof that I ever did this. Produce a body, I dare you. Man. So just like we do with the things that we try to grow... Our Heavenly Father has tactics, has things that He does when he, when he walks into His vineyard and He realizes there's not the fruit here that I expect. Jesus says it in verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now let's just be honest. How many of you have ever read this passage now or in the weeks we've been doing this study and you've said, I don't know that I get that. Like, why is it that the very first thing the Father does when he looks in the life of the believer and there's no fruit is to cut off the branch? Now, time out. If you're thinking biblically here, I I think you need to pause here. One of the most used metaphors or Uh, word pictures in the New Testament to talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ are two words, in Jesus. Paul uses those two words all over the place in his writings to talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You are in Christ, you are in Jesus, you are in him. And, and, And of course, Jesus says it here too in John 15. And so you're telling me the minute the Heavenly Father walks through the garden and he sees that there's not the fruit in my life, in your life, that he wants, he's going to cut us off? We're no longer in Jesus? Our salvation's gone? That ought to startle us. It also ought to make us dig a little bit deeper to try to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. Let me give you something that I I don't think you would see on the surface. Jesus says, he cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. This verb, cuts off, is the Greek verb, iro. And it's the same verb used in these verses, Matthew 4, 6. He will command his angels concerning you that they will 
Iro, if you will, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Let's go to the next one. Matthew 15, 37, they all ate and were satisfied. This is the feeding of the 4,000. And afterward, the disciples, the verb is Iro, the same verb used here in John 15, 2, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Let's go to the next one. John 8, 59, just so you know that John uses the verb the same way. At this same verb, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus says, my father cuts off, but he uses this Greek verb, iro, which almost every other place in the New Testament is translated as picking up or taking up, the sense of relocating something from the ground to a different altitude. And so I would suggest that the first thing the father does when he finds in our lives, a season of fruitfulness is he lifts up. The Father lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. About 10 years ago, I had a, another friend who spent some time in the Holy Land, and her name was Jamie, and when she came back, she was sharing some of her experiences, and uh, she showed me this picture. I don't know if you can make it out from where you're at, but this is part of the vineyard that I showed you from the Holy Land in, in week one. And this particular picture, uh, about the middle of the screen, there's a, a pretty decent-sized rock actually holding up a vine. And so Jamie tells us that as she's in the Holy Land, she asks the, the keeper of the vineyard what the deal is with that. And, and the story is that one day he found that particular branch laying in the dirt. And he realized that there's no way this branch can produce grapes, which, of course, is why you have a vineyard if it's laying in the dirt. And so he picked the branch up, and, and uh, he used some water, and he wiped off the leaves so that the dirt and any bugs on it wouldn't be an issue. And then he moved the rock over to prop up the branch so it could continue to grow and so that it would eventually bear fruit. And I would suggest that the same way the vineyard keeper from this picture, when he finds a branch that isn't bearing fruit, that's laying over in the ground, the same way he picks it up and delicately washes it off and then props it up, is the same way our Heavenly Father, when he walks through his vineyard and sees believers who aren't bearing fruit, the first step he takes is to lift us up to bring things into our lives that would, that would clean out the dirt and the bugs, the things that are keeping us from bearing fruit. And, and then he finds some way to prop us up so that we can return to health, so that we can bear fruit. You see, our, our Heavenly Father knows that sometimes it takes a radical change of scenery in order for us to do what he's appointed us to do. And we experience these chains of sceneries all the time, and sometimes we don't realize what's happening. Sometimes we don't realize I've stopped bearing fruit, and so, so the, my father is, is picking me up. He's changing my scenery. He's cleaning me off, and he's giving me another chance. Um, we, we see it all the time in our professional lives. Sometimes we're, uh, we're jockeyed around from office to office, or we, we have to move to a different line, or sometimes we have to find a different job altogether with the same company, sometimes with a different company. But sometimes the Father says, you're not, you're not producing fruit here like I've called you to do, and so I'm going to 
I'm going to help you with a change of location. I'm going to pick you up. We, we see it in our friendships. And people come and go from our lives. And sometimes it hurts and sometimes it's okay. But often we don't realize that we have a sovereign heavenly father who's orchestrating this who's doing something in our lives or their lives because there's more fruit that they long to see. We even see this in our church. And sometimes people lose sight of the fact, why is this my church? Why do I call this my church home? And, and for various reasons, people lose sight of that. And I want to tell you, you have church leaders who are very intentional. When we see that, that someone might be you know, their branch, if you will, is laying in the dirt and bugs are crawling on it. And we see that there's something happening and they're losing sight. We do everything we can to, to pick them up and to wash them off and, and to prop whatever we can around their branch so they can continue to grow and bear fruit again. But sometimes it's just not possible. And that's okay. Because when, when our heavenly gardener, when our heavenly father walks through his vineyard and sees believers whose fruit, whose ability to help others taste and see that God is good, when he sees it not growing, the first thing he'll do is he'll lift us up, he'll give us a change of perspective, a, a different place, he'll clean us, clean us off, wash us off, bring people and circumstances into our life to remove from us what's keeping us from growth. Sometimes, though, just a change of location doesn't do it. Sometimes it takes more than he lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. And sometimes he has to go a little further, and we might say, sometimes God has to discipline us. And this is tough stuff to talk about. Not exactly why you came to church for a, I want to pick me up. Let's talk about how God disciplines me. But it's important. The New Testament talks about this. It says God's work in our life to help us to continue to grow who we, into who he wants us to be. On the, on the back of your notes, you'll see we've printed um, a passage from Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. It's about the seventh line there. Um, we'll come back to the first few verses. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? I just want to pause here. And I know for some this is a sensitive topic. Because when your earthly father disciplined you, it, it sure seemed like something other than love. And I, I won't deny that. And it could be difficult to equate a heavenly father with an earthly father. But what the writers of Hebrew, writer of Hebrews here is telling us is we do have a perfect heavenly father who loves us. And sometimes he does need to discipline us. And so the best we can, let's try to separate that from the imperfection of our earthly father. Verse 8, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate children, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. And again, you may be saying, not me, not me. But there is something emotionally and spiritually healthy and mature about looking back at your father and saying, 
Yeah, he really blew it. But maybe there's a reason. And maybe he was doing his best. But regardless, we're talking about a perfectly heavenly father here. Uh, we've all had human fathers who discipline us and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits, to our perfect heavenly father, and live? Our human father disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, even if they were wrong, as they thought best. But God disciplines us, I would say, perfectly for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so whereas our human dads did and maybe do miss the mark in their discipline. The writer of Hebrews says we have a heavenly father who perfectly disciplines us with perfect motives in a perfect way so that we can continue to grow in holiness or in the language of John 15, so that we can continue to do what he's appointed us to do and that's to bear much lasting fruit. And so how does he do it? How does God discipline us? I would, I would suggest, first of all, based on what we just read, he rebukes. And those are spoken words. God's first step of discipline is to rebuke through spoken word. And, and, and we have the word of God. First Timothy says, First uh, Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, the word of God, the Bible, is God-breathed. He spoke it to us. And he spoke it to us. It's useful for teaching. Oh, we like that part. For rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness. You see, the first thing God does when he walks through his garden and sees that there's not fruit in our life is, is he tries to pick us up and clean us off. But if that doesn't work, then he moves into discipline, and the first part of discipline is, is a spoken word. He continues his Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word, through the people in our lives that would say, I think you're missing the mark. I see something in you that concerns me. Through sermons that we listen to, through Bible studies that we participate in, through our daily devotions, through time of prayer, even through praise and worship, God is always speaking to us sometimes helping us to correct. But if spoken word doesn't work, in, in, in Hebrews 12, 6, it, uh, the writer says, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. So if the rebuke doesn't work, then he disciplines, which are actions intended to elicit a refraining effect. So to, so to say that more specifically, he introduces a little more discomfort, a little more pain into the process. If lifting up and cleaning off doesn't work, if a spoken, you know, reproof doesn't work, then it gets a little more uncomfortable. Uh, parents, we do this, right, in healthy parenting. We, we try to correct our child verbally first, and if that doesn't work, then maybe a timeout or grounding. Yes, a, a little more pain, a little discomfort, let's take something away. Same kind of thing. And God often uses other people in our lives as tools of discipline. Finish this phrase. I'm sure you know it. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I don't know if it's about discipline, but there's a truth there. 
You see, God often uses other people in our lives to discipline us, to move us back onto the path he has for us. And teenagers, this is one of the hardest realities of adolescence. Your parents don't hate you. They're not trying to embarrass you or make your life horrible. They love you. And they see something in your life that isn't God's best for you. And they may not be perfect. They may miss the mark. But when they discipline you, they do it because they love you. Husbands and wives, you, we cannot underestimate the role that our spouses play in God's discipline of us. As a matter of fact, earlier this week, or maybe last week, I heard this quote from Chuck Swindoll. He said, well, you know, I've learned that the voice of the Holy Spirit is often very close to the voice of one's wife. And all the women said, amen. Employers do the same thing. They discipline us. They introduce hardship into our lives, sometimes because we need to learn God-honoring submission and respect. And the hardest part of this whole equation is that sometimes, maybe oftentimes, it's not even other believers that God uses to discipline us. I mean, the most infamous example is in Scripture where God used Nebuchadnezzar to discipline the children of God, the nation of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar was evil, wicked. He burned people alive because they disagreed with him. But the prophets make it clear that Nebuchadnezzar was God's tool of discipline because the children of God had wandered away from God. God starts with spoken word. And then he introduces more pain and discomfort, all with the goal of bringing us back to fruitfulness. And if that doesn't work, then he chastens. That's the word the writer of Hebrews uses, the words chastens. We don't use that word often in English, but I, I couldn't really find a word that, that fit what that is, this, this intense, intense, intense discomfort and pain. Like, this hurts. Like, beyond hurts, this is painful. And I'm ready to be done with this, and I'll do whatever it takes for this to stop, Lord. He chastens when we don't respond to his rebuke or his discipline. This word chastens in Hebrews is the same word that the gospel, users, users, gospel writers use when they talk about the soldiers scourging Jesus. When they whipped him with the cat of nine tails, same word there as, as, as the Hebrews writer uses for chastens. You get the picture. Do you see the process. When the Heavenly Father walks through his vineyard, when he examines my life and your life and, and our life together as a church, and he says, you're just not fruitful. You're not helping others to taste and see that the Lord your Father is good. You don't care about anyone except yourself. You have no heart for the community. I mean, I'm not saying he says these things about Beulah, but when he sees these things in our life, first things he does, he tries to give us a different perspective. He, he lifts us up and he cleans us off, just trying to reintroduce growth. He, he props us up with a rock if he needs to. And if that doesn't work, then he rebukes us through a spoken word. And if we still don't listen, then he disciplines us. He in, introduces some kind of discomfort or redirection, and if that doesn't work, then he chastens or he scourges us and introduces severe measures 
with the hope that will change, that will stop, that will do something different so that we can bear fruit. And this is hard. And we don't like to talk about this. This isn't the stuff that we go home and say, wow, that was a great message. I feel so encouraged. And yet this is the way that God works in the life of his children, of the people he loves. Notice, matter of fact, take your notes out and and as I read through these first few verses in Hebrews 12, just just underline a few passages. Actually, let's just skip to to verse 5. It says, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? Just underline that. Father as a father addresses. This isn't, an, this isn't a, 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 a soldier addressing an inmate. This isn't a warden addressing a jailer. This isn't a killjoy addressing his subject. This is a father relating to, connecting with, addressing his son, his daughter. It says, my son, my child. Underline this. My child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, verse 6, because here it is, catch this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And underline this next phrase, he chastens everyone he accepts as children. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you, underline this phrase, as his children. You see, God disciplines those he loves. And sometimes we look around and things at work are incredibly difficult. And we don't get it. We don't understand why our employer is being such a jerk. Why our supervisor won't cut us any slack. Why it seems that there's favorites and we're not one of them. Sometimes at home things are tense and, and husband and wife can't get along and it seems like, like mom and dad are being especially difficult on the children. And sometimes we come to church and it just doesn't feel right. It's just off. I don't get it. I've been coming here for 15 years. Why is it this? Why is it that? And if we're able to, to peek behind the curtain we would see the gardener caring, loving us, wanting to restore us to fruitfulness. And he's tried. He's lifted us up. He's cleaned us off. He's rebuked us. He's disciplined us. And, and somehow we haven't caught on. And so now he's chastening us, not to ruin us, but to restore us. remembering we didn't choose him. He chose us. And he appointed us to bear fruit, fruit that will last. He called us so that people would look at our life and our community and our family and our church and would say, if that's how good God is, i got to get me some of that. We're going to take a few moments of silence as we wrap up before I close in prayer. I think this is a good time to ask some of the difficult questions. Is there some area in my life where God is disciplining me? 
Maybe it's a rebuke. Maybe there's some mild discomfort or maybe there's intense pain, but is there somewhere where God is disciplining me and why? What's that all about? What do I need to change? I think maybe a question we ought to consider is am I willing to change? Am I okay with God taking it to the next level of discipline? Or do I want to figure that out now? so that I can begin bearing fruit again. I'm going to ask you just to, to bow and pray with me. We're going to be silent for a while. You have those questions printed in front of you. You can ask them in your own words. Let's spend a little time in reflection, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it breaks our heart to know that there's times when you look at our life and you're disappointed with what you see. Father, we know there's one sense in which we all go through seasons where things are off and it's just not right. And yet, Father, we love you so much and we don't want to disappoint you. And Father, we thank you that in your love and your compassion and your great mercy, then when that's what you find, that instead of cutting us off and throwing us on the burn pile, that you lift us up and you clean us off, that you give us every chance to re be restored to growth. And Father, you're so patient willing that, that, that none of us should perish, that none of us should be cut from the vine, but that we would return to fruitfulness. And Father, we thank you for the masterful way in which you move us back in that direction. Lord, I pray in my own life that you would help me to be more responsive sooner to your disciplining work in my life. Would you help me to listen sooner to react and respond and change sooner, to remove from my life the, the behaviors that would keep me from bearing fruit like you want. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we continue to examine ourselves. Would you give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us? Would you help us to know what in our life is keeping us from bearing fruit? Would you help us to understand what you're doing and what you've introduced into our life and, and how that's going to return us to fruitfulness, to health, to the relationship with Jesus Christ that you want us to have. Father, we thank you that we're already clean. 
that, that we don't need to be saved again, we don't need to be baptized again, that we're in the vine. And we ask you to continue to grow us and, and uh, help us to become who you've called us to be. Would you help us to produce what you desire of us? Would you help us to remain in the vine? We love you, Father. We thank you for your discipline and work in our lives. Amen. I'm going to ask if you'd please stand and we can bless one another before we're dismissed. If you're a guest today, the way we do this is I'm going to pronounce the blessing and then in unison the congregation will respond and also to you. And in that way, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll bless one another. May you accept God's discipline knowing that you were loved. May you respond to God's correction with grace. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with grace.